This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. No burning hallway discussions about David that brought up a question. You know, with the other um, administrations we've looked at, sort of promises, conditions, parties, all that kind of stuff, and tying it back to a certain degree to like the covenant formulation and that kind of thing. Do you, I mean, David's sort of a hard one to like know. It's sort of hard to fit into that framework. Do folks try to fit that into a covenant structure that this is Susan D. Vassal Treaty? And what are, what are Horton and those guys typically, how do they treat it? I know Horton sort of makes it a promissory covenant, but. Yeah, that, uh, the, the tendency within that camp is to make it more of a, a promise covenant. Um, like I said, the, there's there's some debate even, well, uh, for, for for longer than pre-Horton, I suppose, even back in decline, I, I guess you'd have to say, there has been some discussion about, uh, like I mentioned um, at the start, about whether the covenant is conditional or unconditional. Um, you know, are the are the promises of it unconditionally given to David or is it conditional on his obedience to the Mosaic Law? Um, there, there has been that debate, and I think it the it ends up it ends up being hard to categorize along those lines. But in the same way that I think any covenant is, and on the one hand, it is unconditional. God promises that He'll preserve the Davidic line in perpetuity, regardless of what David or any of the other kings do. So. It is unconditional, but at the same time, it's conditional because he chastises sinfulness. You know, um, there's judgment that comes on various kings. So, like any divine covenant, it depending on how you, depending on which aspect you're considering, it you could say it's conditional or unconditional. Um, I think that, but also like any, I think you, you have to say that it, if you, if you had to choose one, it's unconditional. I mean, the the outcome of the covenant depends on God's faithfulness, not on man's activity. Um, But within that divine control, there's the the actions of God's people has meaning and implications. Is that kind of what you're... Yeah, I was just wondering if folks try to say, okay, this is the preamble, this is the historical prologue, these are the conditions and the promises, and then try to fit it into some sort of ancient Near Eastern treaty structure, is it, at that point, is it not even relevant since given these more first millennium? Yeah, you, you end up not having, uh, there, there's not as strident of an effort to fit it into the ancient Near Eastern form. And like you say, a lot of that has to do with its dating. Um, it's, it's not the same, it's not in the same time period, and it, although it, it clearly is, Established there in Second Samuel seven, um, it doesn't. It's not. It's not the lengthy treatment that would yield all those sorts of components of a treaty. So that that generally isn't the, the tack that people take with it. At least in the reading. At least in my reading. Now, the the dispensationalists they'll take the the because I I always hear <coughs> something about like they see it that. David actually will reign like during the, the millennial, right? Or the millennial kingdom? Is that how they take this covenant? Because I'm confused exactly how do the dispensationalists take the implications of this? Like how do they draw it out? I mean, cause, I mean, they would still affirm that Jesus was, was of the line of David, but it seems like from what I've heard, like they're still pretty hardcore about wanting to see David actually reigning later or something like that. Do you know what I'm talking about or no? Yeah, uh, of course, I mean, you have some variety within the dispensationalist camp, but gen- generally the, their expectation that they draw from the Davidic covenant does have to do with the, the earthly reign of Christ um, in a uh, premillennial 
sort of sense where where Christ will come and reign for the thousand years. And that reign, that earthly millennial reign is seen amongst most dispensationalists or a lot of dispensationalists as being uh, an outworking of the Davidic promises. Uh, that David as that Christ as the the great son of David is fulfilling the promises made to David, not in being the mediator and king of the church, but by sitting on an earthly throne in the way that David had. That tends to be the way that it's viewed as having its final fulfillment. Or I knew that because like I thought I've heard some of them say actually explicitly that they think of David as actually like co-ruling or something like that. I don't know if that was just like somebody didn't know. I mean, it's kind of fringe more or less, but yeah, um, could it could very well be. I'm not, I'm not um, like I said. You, you find some a considerable bit of variety within dispensationalist thinkers and writers. Um, I'm, I'm not aware of a, a, an expectation of David himself reigning. Isn't that most most of what I have encountered uh, sees it as being the, the the Davidic reign as being through Christ in a millennial kingdom. But I could be. I might be, be missing a, an important strand of dispensational thought. Anything else? All right, we'll move on to the New Covenant. Uh, and the, the New Covenant, specifically as the idea of the New Covenant, at least for today, we're going to be looking at how the idea of the New Covenant is found and developed in the prophetic literature, the prophetic books of the Old Testament. Now, when we think of the New Covenant, uh, we tend to think on the one hand of the New Testament, the, the, the covenant as it is in Christ, but also we tend to think of the New Covenant as it's expounded by the Old Testament prophets. Uh, it's in the prophetic books that we see this idea of the New Covenant articulated and the sort of expectations for it set. Now, actually, in the, in the prophets, the phrase New Covenant, uh, Barit Hadashah, occurs only once in all of the prophetic literature, uh, just in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Uh, but while that exact phrase is unique to that one verse, the idea of a New Covenant is one that is found and that's developed throughout the prophetic literature. Uh, you get it... Uh, it receives a particular amount of attention in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, uh, but you get indications of it really in all the prophets. Uh, most often, the new covenant is referred to by other prophets and by uh, the language of everlasting covenant, sometimes covenant of peace. You know, there, there are various ways of referring to this new covenant, but in all these various ways of referring to it, it's the same uh, idea that's in view. It's what we know as and refer to as the New Covenant. And when you get into the New Testament, it's abundantly clear that this New Covenant and the, the concept of the New Covenant that God had developed through His prophets is a critically important concept. Um, in the Last Supper, for instance, uh, Christ uses the New Covenant as the grid through which His work is to be understood. Uh, what the prophets had said about the New Covenant creates the sort of expectation, the promise uh, that Jesus fulfills in His work. And so Christ places a, a good bit of emphasis on the new covenant. Uh, likewise, in his uh, letters, when Paul contrasts the, uh, the old, you know, is con- contrasting the current era with the old covenant, he's working off this idea of the new covenant. Uh, in Hebrews 8-10, through 10, there the author to the Hebrews very clearly uses the idea of the new covenant uh, to highlight the superiority of Christ, uh, both His uh, continuity with what had gone before and His superseding glory over what had come before. Uh, very clearly, the New Testament, uh, in telling us how we are to understand who Christ was and what He's done, uh, how we're to fit Christ into God's overall redemptive work, 
in all of those things, the New Testament makes clear that it's this idea of the new covenant and the idea of the new covenant as it's being formulated in the prophets uh, that needs to inform and guide our understandings of Christ. So clearly the, the new covenant is of critical importance. Now most of you, I, I assume, have read, uh, perhaps you haven't, but some of you maybe have read Robertson's chapter on the new covenant. Uh, he calls it the covenant of consummation. And in that chapter on the new covenant, seems to me there are both some great strengths and some notable weaknesses. Uh, on the one hand, Robertson's treatment of how the new covenant is connected moving forward with what will come in, in Christ, uh, that aspect of Robertson's treatment strikes me as being very good. Uh, particularly, Robertson uh, rightly emphasizes uh, the exceeding glory of the new covenant. It's surpassing by far the glory of what had come before. Now, all that's very good, but it seems to me, in my opinion, I, I recognize I don't have the, the standing to disagree with Robertson, but in my uh, humble opinion, uh, Robertson is a little bit weak on connecting the new covenant with what had come before it. He, he's good on the new covenant as it's moving forward, but he, his emphasis doesn't fall as much on the new covenant and its connection with what has come before it. Uh, he oftentimes speaks of the new covenant maintaining the same covenantal essence or the covenantal purpose as the previous covenants, but he always seems to pull up short of saying that the new covenant is maintaining the same covenant. Uh, not just a covenantal essence, but a covenant. Uh, he focuses a lot particularly on the exile and sees a very strong division between the new covenant on the one hand and on the other hand everything that's come before it. Uh, he speaks of the exile as being the annulment of the old covenant, uh, of it placing the Israelites, as he puts it, the, the exile placed the Israelites into the same position that they were before God summoned Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, he then goes on to say that the exile means that an entirely new covenant history must begin. So it, you know, it kind of, as indicated in those couple of places there, it seems to me that Robertson's treatment too strongly emphasizes the disjuncture between what occurred prior to the New Covenant and the New Covenant itself. Um, so what I want to do this morning is to look uh, particularly at how the New Covenant uh, fits into the unbroken covenantal stream that goes from Noah through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through the New Covenant to Christ. Uh, how the, the New Covenant fits into that continuing covenantal purpose. Um, Robertson, in his book, discusses several different, I think he calls them motifs, uh, of the New Covenant. And he talks about some of the debates that crop up about the New, uh, the new Covenant. Um, we won't, I won't rehash those in detail, uh, but rather we want to look at how the New Covenant fits into the covenantal flow and hopefully uh, that will uh, help you to, to use the, the good information that Robertson has um, in his discussion. Now, if, if you're trying to quickly get a handle on the New Covenant, it can be a, a fairly imposing task. And like I said, the, the New Covenant largely spreads itself out over all of the prophetic literature. Uh, you could take all the prophets and from all of them draw an understanding of the New Covenant. And certainly that's a, a worthwhile endeavor. It's not something we have the, the time for in this course. So my, my intention this morning is to focus on one concrete passage in the Scriptures that can root our understanding of the New Covenant, uh, and out of which we then can understand and work through the rest of the material uh, that the Scriptures have on the New Covenant, uh, material that you come across in secondary literature on the New Covenant, I basically give you a, a, a place in the Scriptures where you can anchor your understanding of the New Covenant. And certainly if you're looking for a place that's foundational for the New Covenant, uh, there is no better passage than Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Uh, like I've said, it's in that passage that the language of New Covenant is used. And that's 
important not simply for terminological reasons. Um, the, the, the calling of the covenant there, the new covenant, points, it seems to me, to a certain awareness of this covenantal administration as a sort of unified whole uh, and as a, furthermore as a development of what had come before. Now also, when you get into the New Testament, as I said a couple minutes ago, uh, in Hebrews 8 through 10, when the New Covenant is given its fullest New Testament exposition, uh, it's this passage out of Jeremiah that's quoted. It's quoted twice, uh, and it serves as the starting point for uh, Hebrews' understanding of the New Covenant. So it seems uh, that the best place, if we're going to look for one place to um, anchor our understanding, it seems that Jeremiah 31 is the place to go. Now, I, I know that some of you all have uh, prepared sermons on that passage, and some of your uh, papers deal with it. Um, you know, don't don't be concerned about that. I don't mean for uh, anything that I say to uh, discourage you from pursuing this passage in more depth. There's a lot more that can be said about it than I can say now, certainly. But um, but anyway, Jeremiah uh, 31, 31 through 34. Uh, shows us pretty clearly, I think, that the, the overriding point, the overriding point that uh, the prophet is making is that in this new covenant, God is making the fullness of His covenantal purposes unshakably guaranteed through the forgiveness of sins. Now, that seems to be the central point that Jeremiah is making to us in regard to the new covenant. Yeah, uh, in the new covenant... God makes the fullness of His covenantal purpose unshakably guaranteed through the forgiveness of sins. If you had to sum it up, that passage in one sentence, that might be a fairly good way to do it. Yeah. Uh, in, in the new covenant, God makes the fullness of His covenantal purpose unshakably guaranteed through the forgiveness of sins. Now, first of all, in order to come to terms with what is going on in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, uh, we need to appreciate the context in which Jeremiah is living and prophesying. As all y'all know, or might know, uh, Jeremiah lived and prophesied during the time of the exile. Uh, we talked a little bit last hour about how the exile was not the casting off of the previous covenants, but nonetheless, the exile was undeniably a traumatic event for the Israelites. Uh, Israel was a nation that had come to focus almost exclusively on the earthly types of God's promises. And to that nation, the removal from the land and the captivity of the Davidic king uh, seemed very much to indicate that God was no longer their God and they were no longer His people. Uh, the very tangible tokens of God's special relationship with Israel seemed to have been revoked. Uh, Judgment was a very present reality to the men and women of Jeremiah's day. And it's in that reality of judgment, or it is that reality of judgment that is Jeremiah's primary focus in the first 25 chapters of his prophecy. Uh, Jeremiah chapters, 20, chapters 1 through 25, uh, Jeremiah deals with uh, the fact that after generation upon generation upon generation of transgressing God's covenant, uh, Israel has made judgment unavoidable. Now, that's essentially the, the point that Jeremiah is driving home in the first 25 chapters. But then when you get into chapter 26 of Jeremiah, uh, the prophet starts to turn his attention not to judgment, but to the promise of consolation on the far side of that judgment. Uh, so certainly by the time you get to chapter 31, you're into what sometimes is called the book of consolation, and Jeremiah's focus um, and his emphasis is on the consolation that remains for a people who have broken God's covenant by their own sin. Uh, Jeremiah has borne down on judgment coming upon sin in the first 25 chapters. And then when you get here to this passage that we're considering with the new covenant, uh, Jeremiah is focusing on the consolation that remains for those people uh, who have broken God's covenant. And it's to these covenant-breaking people uh, that God or that Jeremiah speaks the words of uh, the passage that we're considering. And 
in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, uh, Jeremiah tells of this new covenant, and he assures the Israelites that in this covenant, God is bestowing the fullness of His covenantal purpose. The new covenant, as Jeremiah presents it, is very much the climactic realization of everything that God had done previously. Now, initially, when you look at this passage, it can seem as if Jeremiah is placing a pretty sharp division between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, in fact, from verse 32 of Jeremiah, I've got my Bible open here. Um, in verse 32, it can seem as if really the defining characteristic of the New Covenant is its departure from all of God's covenantal work up to that point. Uh, verse 32 says that the New Covenant is not according to the Old Covenant. It can seem as if there's the very sharpest of distinctions being drawn, but when you consider the passage more closely, when you look at the whole passage and look at it in some detail, you realize that the Old Covenant is the necessary substructure upon which this New Covenant is operating. Uh, in verse 31, God refers to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 33, God again refers to the house of Israel. Verse 33, again, God speaks of putting His law in His people's minds and writing it on their hearts. Uh, very clearly there, God's referring to the Mosaic law. And you see, in explaining the new covenant, God is using and depending upon categories and realities that have been created by His covenantal work up until that point. It's God's covenant that had created the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's God's covenant that had brought the law um, at what you might call the operational level. The new covenant depends upon prior covenantal realities. It's those realities that are the substructure upon which this uh, new covenant stands and upon which it functions. Uh, you get the clear indication that in the new covenant, God isn't wiping the slate clean and starting something that's related but different, but rather God is continuing the same covenantal work that He's been doing all along. He's created Israel and Judah, He's given the law, and on that covenantal foundation He's moving forward in the new covenant. But that's probably, this continuity, it seems to me, is probably made the most clear in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31. Uh, in verse 33, God reiterates the Emmanuel principle as we've called it. Uh, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. If you all remember, that's, that statement has occurred time and again uh, through the Scriptures as essentially the, the distilled goal of God's covenantal work. Uh, his ongoing covenantal goal uh, has been the creation of a people, and in Jeremiah 31, we see that that ongoing covenantal goal is achieved in the New Covenant. So when you take Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34 as a whole, and you realize that in this new covenant, God is dealing with realities created by His previous covenants, and He's achieving the same goal that had been pursued by those previous covenants, uh, then you start to realize that in this new covenant, God isn't uh, starting afresh, but rather He is continuing and He is finishing what He's been doing all along. Now, as you uh, look at the rest of the prophetic literature, you see that same emphasis uh, within the New Covenant. Uh, one of the places that oftentimes is referenced and a place where it's made particularly clear is in Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, verses 24 and 25. Uh, at that point in Ezekiel, At that point in Ezekiel, uh, God is speaking of His uh, new covenant people, so to speak, uh, the people whom He'll gather from all the nations, the people whom He will cleanse. And then He says of this new covenant people in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 and 25, He says, David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. 
Now in those two verses, the almost inexpressible blessings of the new covenant are being explicitly described as the fulfillment of God's previous covenantal administrations. Uh, in verse 24, you have the Davidic king from the Davidic covenant. Uh, also in verse 24, you have the law from the Mosaic covenant, as referred to as the judgments and the statutes. Also in verse 25, you have uh, the promised seed and the promised land from the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, very clearly there, the glories of the new covenant is, are seen as being the sort of confluence of God's previous covenantal administrations. Uh, what God is doing and accomplishing in the new covenant is not a departure from His previous covenantal work. Uh, it's not a new covenant history being written, but rather it is a fulfillment of God's previous covenantal work. It's a fulfillment of that covenantal history. Uh, that sort of covenantal continuity that's latent throughout the new covenant uh, which you see there in Ezekiel 37, where we just read, but also that you see back in Jeremiah 31, it makes you realize that when we talk about the new covenant, we have to be uh, very precise in our understanding of what Jeremiah means and what we mean by a new covenant. Now, in Jeremiah specifically, uh, the word that Jeremiah uses uh, is hadashah, uh, it's a word in the Hebrew that has a similar range of meaning to our word new. It has a similar sort of range of nuanced meanings. And as we know, new can have various shades of meaning. For instance, back in, I think it was 1885, a man named Carl Benz introduced what he called the patent motorwagen in my poor German um, enunciation. Uh, it was the first car. It was a new thing in a very real sense of the word. It was utterly unlike anything that had come before. Uh, it was very definitely new. And the newness of the motor wagon uh, centered on the wholesale break between it and everything else that had come before it. Now, on the other hand, sometime in the relatively near future, supposedly, uh, Mercedes is going to put out the SCL 600. It's a, a new model, new features, new design. I saw something where they, it's going to be, might be joystick controlled. Anyway, it's just some new technologically advanced car that will undoubtedly be new. But it's not new in the same way that the motor wagon was new. Uh, the motor wagon was brand new. Uh, this new model of car sort of renews the already existing phenomenon of the car. It's you know, a very clear difference. Uh, both are new, but it's a different kind of new. And the new covenant that Jeremiah describes and that the prophets uh, articulate for us, this new covenant is new in the same sense that the SCL 600 model is new. Uh, the new covenant is an improvement. It's a progression. Uh, it's new in the sense not of being a complete break from what's come before, but it's new in the sense of renewing or furthering what has come before. So in this new covenant, God isn't beginning something categorically new, but rather He is moving forward His eternal covenantal purposes. He's working off the same covenant realities He's created already. He's pursuing the same covenantal purpose. The new covenant is new in its progression of what God already has been doing. Uh, but at the same time, there is something new about the New Covenant. There is progression in it. And in Jeremiah 31, we see that this New Covenant is new because in it, God is making these covenantal purposes, these things He's always been pursuing, uh, He's making them unshakably guaranteed. Um, and we need to remember at that point that Jeremiah here is speaking the words of his prophecy to men and women who are facing the exile. Uh, men and women who, practically speaking, can almost hear uh, the advancing footfalls of the Babylonian army. Uh, the, the men and women hearing Jeremiah's prophecy are very agonizingly aware that 
by their sin, God's people have broken the covenant and judgment is coming on them because of it. Uh, If they had missed that fact, they would have caught it, if they're reading Jeremiah after it was written, uh, they would pick that up in the first 25 chapters. Uh, The people to whom Jeremiah is is speaking, the context in which he's speaking it, is the context of a broken covenant. And in that context, God is declaring through Jeremiah that he is making a new covenant that will be unbreakable. Uh, That's the, the real point, it seems to me, of the contrast that Jeremiah makes in verse 32. Uh, In verse 32, God says that the new covenant is not according to the old covenant, or it's not like the old covenant. But God doesn't make that contrast in an absolute sort of sense, that they're not at all alike. But rather, He immediately goes on, still in verse 32, to speak of how the old covenant was broken by Israel's sin. Of course, God didn't say it's broken in the sense of being destroyed, but it's broken in the sense of being transgressed. Uh, Just like we, by our sin, break the law, we don't invalidate and destroy the law, we transgress the law. That's the sense of being broken. Um, So what God is saying in verse 32 is that the new covenant will be not like the old covenant that could be and was broken. In other words, the new covenant will be unbreakable. In this new covenant, God is bringing a covenant that is new in its unbreakableness. And in fact, He even tells the Israelites, He he tells His people how He will make the covenant unbreakable. In verse 33, God speaks of writing His law on the hearts of His people. Now, up until this point, we know that the law has been something external. We talked about how that was one of the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant, that the law was written down, it could be read, it was uh, codified in a way uh, that men could read it and understand it. But it still was an external law. It was written on tablets of stone. Uh, The Israelites essentially had to spend their whole lives trying to contort and conform themselves to fit that law. But under the New Covenant, God says that He'll write the law on the hearts of His people. Uh, The law of God will fill their minds, it will give their hearts their shape. Uh, The law of God won't be something external to which God's people must conform themselves, but rather the law will be a part of who they are. Now, I find it noteworthy that Jeremiah is the same prophet who says back in chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The, the contrast between the way that Jeremiah had described hearts before and the way that he describes them now is striking. Uh, wicked hearts will now be inscribed with the holy law of God. God is, in a sense, literally rewriting the hearts of His people. Uh, the covenant will be unbreakable because the covenant law will be part of who God's people are. Now, this internalization of the law uh, wasn't anything new. Uh, you get a promise. You get promises of this internalization of the law even back in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter eleven, verse eighteen, Deuteronomy chapter thirty, verse fourteen. Uh, also, you get indications in Deuteronomy of uh, God's people having circumcised hearts, which is you know a similar idea. You get that in Deuteronomy ten sixteen and Deuteronomy thirty, verse six. You know, it, it's not a an unheard of idea for the law to be internalized. Um, But rather you see that this long-standing expectation of an internalized law is coming to fulfillment in the new covenant. Now this this is the part of the the radical newness of the new covenant. Uh, It is an unbreakable covenant. And it's made unbreakable not because God is somehow softening or eviscerating his law or his expectations, God isn't changing his law, he's changing his people. Uh, that's the, the newness of this new covenant. Now certainly that sounds wonderful, um, you know, that God has brought about this unbreakable covenant and he's done it by changing his people, but that also doesn't um, square, you could say, with our experience. 
you know, we know that even um, even uh, those who believe in Christ, even those who are truly in the new covenant, uh, they still do have sin in their hearts. Uh, they're not on this side of glory fully conformed to the law. Um, but that, even that, doesn't invalidate the new covenant. It's even even still, it's unbreakable, and um, that's made also very plain there in Jeremiah 31, because in Jeremiah 31, God says that not only will His covenant be made unbreakable, but it will be made unbreakable. It will be made unbreakable not only through the changing of His people, but also through the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, the forgiveness of sins is stated very plainly in verse 34 of the passage. You know, certainly, we, as we saw last week, there was a sense in which the forgiveness of sins was a part of the Mosaic Covenant. You know, there's the sacrificial system, uh, the, the clear uh, system of atonement. Uh, so it's, not in, again, not a categorically new thing, uh, but rather it's a, a wonderful progression. Uh, sacrifices don't have to be continually offered, uh, but rather God forgives the sin of His people and he remembers them no more. Uh, as verse 34 describes it, the sins of God's people will be forgotten. Uh, they'll be in, truly and entirely forgiven. So in, the, in this new covenant, God is bringing the fullness of his covenantal purposes, the fullness of his covenantal promises to pass, and he's doing that by changing his people and by washing away their sin. Now certainly that is a radically new covenant. These are things that God has not done before, but they're not at all discontinuous with God's previous covenantal work. Uh, it's new, a new covenant uh, in the sense almost of dropping all of the external types that had accompanied the previous covenantal administrations and finally accomplishing what the covenant of grace has been pursuing all along. Uh, a true people of God who have been changed by Him uh, who live for His glory. Um, that's the, the, the essence of the new covenant. And not that it's a, a break from what's come before, but that it brings the fulfillment of what's come before through the changing of His people and the forgiveness of sins. Now, it, it seems to me that, that, that those elements of the new covenant uh, can be, hopefully, I would think, uh, effectively and powerfully applied uh, for the comfort of God's people when you have occasion to, to preach and to teach on uh, aspects of the covenant. Uh, there are many Christians who are, to greater or lesser degrees, haunted by sins that they've committed in the past. Uh, something in their past that seems to be so filthy or so treacherous or personal that although people are convinced of the gospel, they somehow sense that God will be unable or unwilling to forgive this particular sin. Um, you find that with some frequency amongst God's people. But in the promise of the new covenant, there's the promise that sin is forgotten, uh, that it's remembered no more, it's forgiven. Uh, there is no more sin amongst God's people. And I'll certainly get that with even more clarity in the New Testament and the our clear understanding of the work of Christ. But even here, uh, there's comfort uh, for God's people in the forgiveness and the forgetting of sin. It's not something they have to constantly parade before God with a sacrifice, uh, but rather it is forgotten and forgiven. But also, uh, many Christians uh, struggle with indwelling sin. That Now, obviously, all of us have indwelling sin. Uh, a lot of times, people are comfortable calling indwelling sin, indwelling sin, and then letting it dwell there rather peacefully. Um, but some people, uh, hopefully, increasingly, loathe their indwelling sin. Uh, they don't like the uh, particular addiction that they can't shake. Um, and in this description of the new covenant, there is a, a wonderful comfort for God's people uh, that there is coming a day in which they will have new hearts. Uh, there's coming a day in which uh, between the holiness of God's law and the state of their own hearts, there will be no difference. Uh, the law will be written on their hearts. 
And that can be a, a great comfort to God's people. It ought, it ought to be certainly a comfort to each of us. Um, it's just a, a few thoughts on how the, the new covenant, as it's explained in Jeremiah 31, can be of some uh, application. But uh, you know, in relatively short order, I think that's the, the window that Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, gives us on the new covenant. Uh, it's a covenant in which God makes the fullness of His covenantal purpose unshakably guaranteed through the forgiveness of sins. It's wonderfully new. These are things God hasn't done before. But it's also not disjointed from what's come before. <clears throat> it's a, a new but yet continuous covenant. Um, before we move on to the next little bit, does anybody have any questions there out of Jeremiah 31? Yeah, this may not be for this section, but... Uh, I grew up Baptist um, and continue to kind of wrestle with that issue in the Presbyterian Church. How do Baptists come to the, to the New Covenant here in Jeremiah and, and, and say and argue that, all right, the sign is changing here, or you know, what, what would they argue in this text? Or would they have anything to say about it? Just with the New Testament evidence. That the, that the sign is changing? Or just the, the newness. I mean, you're saying, I'm just trying to think what they might say about it. It was very little was talked about at my church. It was dispensational too, so they're throwing out a lot of things uh, growing up. Um, but what are they? What are they doing with this idea of the covenant coming to newness? Are they just chopping it off at the knees and saying it's completely new? It's the German car, whatever you're talking about. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, within uh, within some dispensationalist camps, they would begin it over as entirely new. Uh, normally, what kind of a, a a standard non-rabidly dispensationalist Baptist view would be in relating to Jeremiah 31 that it primarily is used um, to speak of how the New Testament or the New Covenant Church um, is essentially a, a community only of believers that um, there's no I guess the demand for a pure church on earth, that, you know, that, that within this new covenant community that's being created, um, all of the people within it, they don't need to be taught anymore. They, they, um, uh, they have the law written in their hearts. They don't need to be taught. They're, uh, essentially, it's, it's seen as presenting the new covenant church as a, a pure church, which then, uh, in a Baptist view of the sacraments, ends up... Um, Undergirding their the 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 demand for um, uh, credo baptism, that that tends to be the the primary way that Jeremiah thirty one is used within Baptist theology, um, mainly as a uh, as a particular view of the definition or the makeup of the church. Now there's a um, Trying to think the name of the book. I think it's called the the case for covenantal infant baptism. I think it's the name of the book. It's edited by Greg Strawbridge, I think. And there's an essay in there by Richard Pratt about Jeremiah 31, and it's um, how it should be understood in the context of baptism and definition of the church. So for that, um, if you're interested in that particular question, that could be a a, a starting point to look. Um, but that, that tends to be the way it's most often used. Now, maybe I, I can track with you at one point. Now, I mean, this is talking about today, right? I mean, with the guy who's written his law in his heart, on our hearts, I mean, some of that is true now. I mean, we're a new creation in Christ. I mean, the New Testament talks about that way. But then the part even in verse 34 where it says that they, they not only teach one another, but each one will know the Lord himself, basically. Like, but that seems like, kind of like what you said, that doesn't quite jive with what we see yet. So is this still kind of the, there's an already but not yet component, or how are we supposed to kind of see this? Yeah, it, it, it very much uh, falls into the already not yet sort of grid. Um, you know, on the one hand, as believers, you know, we, we have been given hearts of flesh in place of hearts of stone. We do have the law written on our hearts. We have the Spirit to guide us. So there certainly is an, a strong already element um, 
but there's also the, the not yet aspect of and not being fully sanctified or fully sinless until we're in glory. Um, as far as the not being not needing to be taught, uh, again, there's uh, an already aspect to it, again, being taught by the Spirit, uh, specifically as the Spirit illumines the Scriptures for us. Um, we don't need to be uh, pedantically taught as we would have to be without the Spirit. Uh, but when we have new hearts and are indwelt by the Spirit and He illumines the Word that He wrote, we don't need to be taught in the same sort of way. Uh, but <clears throat> there's also the not yet aspect. You know, the, uh, I believe it's in Second Corinthians uh, where Paul talks about how when we uh, see Christ, we'll know Him as He is. There's, there's a sense in which the, the fullness of, the, of knowledge, the point at which we won't anymore have to be taught anything comes only when we're in the presence of God and we know him as he is. And so there's the not yet aspect of, uh, again, awaiting our glorification um, as well as the already. So I think in both, in both cases and with the, the promises there as a whole, uh, there's a strong already element that I think we would, uh, if you could sounds strange to say, but if you could compare the way we are with the way Old Testament believers would have been, I think the already aspect would be remarkably striking. Uh, we would see very clearly the already blessings that we have in the Spirit, uh, but there's also obviously the, the not yet as well. We're not, we're not yet glorified. As you were talking, I don't know if this would kind of make it more sense, but like Paul talks about, you know, before... Christ, you know, the law was our tutor or whatever. Is this kind of, could this maybe be taken as saying, you know, the Old Testament had all those dietary laws, all those external things on them, and that was kind of teaching them they had to learn through those means, whereas now we have the Spirit, so it's like we don't have those same rigid laws anymore because we don't need to come from the external to teach us like that, to guide our everyday lives, but now we have the Spirit and that, you know, now Christian liberty and, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah I think that, that there is an element of that in it. That what uh, under the Old Testament believers were having to be taught through the earthly types, and now we don't need to be taught that in the same way anymore because we have the fullness of the revelation in Christ. So that there is certainly that element to it. You good? Any other questions? Bet y'all are glad there's no chapel today. Weren't you get extra? Extra quality time here. Um, just a, a couple more things about the uh, the new covenant. Like I say, we we there it's it's spread over so much uh, material in Scripture. Yeah, uh, it's hard to treat all of it. Hopefully, by giving you a little bit of a foundation in Jeremiah thirty-one, that can help you as you work through the rest of it. But I I, I do think that it's good to at least briefly look at one other text in the prophets that deals with a, what you could call a problematic aspect of the new covenant. Uh, and that is in the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 1. Um, Hosea, as some of y'all might know, was pretty much a contemporary, or was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, but unlike Isaiah, Hosea prophesied in the northern kingdom, prophesied in Israel. <clears throat> and at the point that Hosea is prophesying, uh, Israel hasn't yet been carried into exile, but the exile is uh, exceedingly imminent. And Hosea is addressing that in his prophecy. Now, if, when you think of Hosea, probably the first thing that comes to mind is Hosea's enacted prophecy, if you want to call it that, his marriage to Gomer, the prostitute, how God was showing through that His faithfulness to uh, adulterous Israel. Um, but there's also uh, some material here in this first chapter that is uh, important, I think, in, or understanding it is important in our understanding of the New Covenant. Um, as we said a couple minutes ago, the, the ex, in the exile, it very much seemed as if, uh, in a manner of speaking, the sin of God's people had been greater than the mercy of God. After a protracted disobedience, God finally had uh, had His mercy exhausted. He revoked His covenant, 
and it was over. Um, that was the, is the sense that could have been communicated by the exile. And all of those foreboding sorts of implications of the exile are held out pretty clearly in this first chapter of Hosea. Uh, specifically, they're held out in the names that God has Hosea give to his three children. Uh, the three children that he has with Gomer after they get married. Uh, the name of the first son, um, the name of the first child who's a son, um, is his, his name is Jezreel. You see there in Hosea 1 verse 4. And that uh, name, as you see there in the passage, points to the essentially the toppling of Israel through military defeat. God is saying he's going to overthrow Israel by foreign military force. Then in verse 6, uh, you see that Hosea's second child, a daughter, is named Lo-Ruhama, uh, which means not pitied or no mercy. Essentially, God is saying through the name of Hosea's daughter that there will be no more mercy coming from God to rebellious Israel. You know, these names of Hosea's children are intended as prophecies, essentially, against Israel. Uh, so the first two names are pretty uh, hard in and of themselves. Israel will be overthrown. There's no more mercy. But the most jarring name is the name of the third child. Uh, you get that in verse 9. Uh, in verse 9, Hosea has a second son with Gomer. And the name of that son is Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. Uh, there, through the name of this child, God is saying that through the exile, He will be declaring Israel to be not His people. And then, God even goes on there in verse 9 to explicitly revoke the Emmanuel principle. He says to Hosea, Call his name Loami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Uh, quite simply, it seems as if in the exile and through the exile, God is undoing His covenant relationship with Israel. The Emmanuel principle is being reversed, stood on its head. Now, it seems to me that that particular, even just that one verse, Hosea 1.9, puts really the, the finest head on what you could call the problem of the exile. Uh, the problem of how we are to understand the exile in light of our suggestion that God has this unbroken covenantal purpose. If God has this unbroken covenantal purpose, what do we make of Hosea chapter 1, verse 9? Uh, does the exile truly represent a revocation of the covenant? Now, it seems to me that the, the simple answer to that is no. Uh, the exile does not represent a revoking of God's covenant. And I think that's clear even here in this, I would say, hardest passage in the prophets uh, on this topic, this passage out of Hosea. Now, first of all, we know clearly that the exile was the removal of Israel from the land. Uh, so if the exile is seen as a revoking of a covenant then it is a revoking of the covenant whereby God had promised the land. Uh, so, what covenant was that? Clearly that was the Abrahamic covenant. It was in the Abrahamic covenant that God had promised a land to His people. So, if Hosea 1 verse 9 represents the undoing of a covenantal relationship, then it has to represent the undoing of the Abrahamic covenant because it was the Abrahamic covenant that brought the blessing of the land that is being revoked so to speak, in the exile. But if you look, if you continue reading, if you don't stop in shock in verse 9 and you read on into verse 10, you see that there God repeats the covenantal promise of a seed that He also had made to Abraham. In fact, there in verse 10, God repeats that promise in the same way that He had articulated it to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, uh, when Abraham had been willing to sacrifice Isaac at God's command. So, in verse 10, 
the Abrahamic covenant as embodied in this promise of a seed is being explicitly reaffirmed. And since the Abrahamic covenant is being specifically reaffirmed in verse 10, you can't very easily say that in verse 9, that same Abrahamic covenant is being revoked. Uh, something else must be going on in verse 9. Because in verse 10, clearly, the Abrahamic covenant is an abiding reality. And what you, what you start to realize is that in verse 9, God isn't revoking His covenant with His people, but rather He is declaring, quite literally, that the northern kingdom is not His people, just like He says in the verse. Um, now that's something, it seems to me, that is semantically fairly easy to pass over. Uh, in verse 9, God isn't making a statement about the relationship between Himself and His people. He's making a statement about the relationship or the identification between the northern kingdom and His people. He's not saying that His people are no longer His people. He's saying that the northern kingdom of Israel is not His people. Uh, he's making a statement uh, not about His relationship to His people, or not about his relationship to the group of his people, but about the relationship of the northern kingdom to the group of his people. He's saying that they are not them. Now, in verse 9, essentially, God is declaring that the northern kingdom is not part of the covenant, that they're not of his covenant people. And essentially, in that, God is declaring with words what the actions of the northern kingdom have been declaring for years, uh, that they were not his people. They had been living lives that manifested an exclusion from the covenant community. Uh, God's judgment is simply manifesting Israel's alienation from Him. Now that was not the case with the southern kingdom of Judah. If you look back up a couple of verses into verse 7, you see there that you know, God has just talked about how he, there will be no more mercy for Israel uh, than the name Lo-Rahama. And then in verse 7 He says, Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, or battle, by horses or horsemen. So, very clearly there, God is saying that His mercy will abide with Judah, the southern kingdom, even as it's being removed from Israel. Now, in order to, to grasp the significance of, of what that means, we need to bear in mind that when God had made each of His previous covenants, when He had made each of His previous covenantal promises all the way up through the Davidic covenant, there was no Judah in the south and Israel in the north. There simply had been Israel. Everyone was Israel. Everyone was a descendant of Abraham. Uh, there was just this one group from which both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have now come. And so by declaring that His mercy will abide with Judah the sons of Abraham in the south, while Israel, the sons of Abraham in the north, will be shown to be not his people, there in verse 9, God is drawing attention to a distinction that always had existed. Essentially, that biological descent from Abraham doesn't guarantee that a man was one of God's people. Now, even within the larger group of Abraham's descendants, there were those who were God's people and there were those who were not. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is still intact. Uh, God isn't throwing it off there in verse 9. Uh, rather, He's making clear that covenant excluding judgment is coming on some while mercy is being shown to others. Essentially, God is acting out on the stage of history with armies and invasions and captivities. He's acting out a reality that always had existed. Uh, the reality that biological descent from Abraham, on the one hand, and membership in the people of God, on the other hand, were not necessarily the same thing. Uh, now, of course, God there is dealing with generalities. Not everyone in the north was not of God's people. You have Hosea, if nobody else. And then also not everybody in the south was of God's people. You glance through First and Second Kings, and that becomes pretty clear. Uh, God isn't making a declaration about the state of each individual person in the two kingdoms, but rather He's making clear that national-slash-ethnic Israel is not shorthand for the people of God. Uh, the national-ethnic group can be scattered to the winds, 
and God's covenant with His people remain untouched. Now that's the, the lesson, it seems to me, that God is teaching there through Hosea. Uh, that same lesson would have to be remembered later uh, when Judah was also carried into exile. Uh, that same lesson that the, the earthly types uh, can be scattered and the covenant still remain. Um, in the exile, uh, hopefully this is making some sense, uh, in, in the exile, particularly as it's being interpreted here in Hosea ver- chapter 1, verse 9, uh, God is showing us that in the exile, He's demonstrating that even among the descendants of Abraham, uh, there were those who were not God's people. Uh, and when, we, when you hold that up alongside what we saw or what we said about the exile under the Davidic covenant, you see a sort of dual function to the exile. Uh, for some, it was a display that although they might be descendants of Abraham, they weren't God's people. Uh, they were the uh, low ami within the physical descendants of Abraham. Uh, for others, for God's people, it was a chastisement that was mingled with mercy, just as God had promised He would do in the Davidic covenant. But it wasn't for anyone a revoking of the covenant of grace. Um, it was a, a judgment, a chastisement, but it was not a revoking of the covenant. Now, you could say a lot more about or out of Hosea chapter 1 there, and there's a lot there about the blessings of the new covenant, the inclusion of the Gentiles. Um, but I think the, the main thing that we need to note there is that even when the, the implications of the exile are put in the starkest terms of being not my people, uh, the Scriptures aren't telling us that God is revoking His covenant. He's not throwing off His people. He rather is declaring that the people uh, of the northern kingdom are not His people, uh, and yet still his covenant uh, is of abiding validity. Um, is, that, is that relatively clear there from Hosea, or is that am I missing you entirely? That, uh, I think that, that really even just that, that one verse is oftentimes uh, seen as definitively establishing that the exile is the undoing of God's previous covenantal work. Uh, all the covenants have been intended to make Israel his people. And in the exile, essentially, God throws up his hands and says, fine, you're not my people. I'm trying something different. Uh, clearly, that's not what Hosea is saying. Uh, the covenant abides. Uh, the problem is not with God's covenant. The problem is that Israel is not of the covenant people whom God always has had and always will have. Any questions on that? Um, so, at the, I think overall, you know, through the prophetic books, uh, we get this picture of the new covenant as being uh, an, you know, an unbreakable covenant. It's new in the sense that it's unbreakable. People have been changed. Sin will be washed away. Uh, the covenant is new, and it's eternally enduring. And it endures even through uh, the trauma of the exile. Um, it's that understanding of the new covenant that prepares the way for Christ that essentially sets the expectation in the hearts of God's people that will then uh, be met in Christ. I had not... I hate to keep y'all, although we had the hour off, or no chapel, I hate to make y'all sit through three straight hours of my talking. Um... Do you have any more questions? Well, if nobody has any objection, rather than getting into the uh, some of the stuff out of the New Testament, we'll go ahead and break. You've already had to sit through 30 more minutes than you bargained for. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll stop there and um, pick up next week, and we'll, uh, believe it or not, finish next week we'll look at the uh, some some parts of the the new the new testament
uh, covenant in the New Testament and then a little bit about sacraments and hopefully have a time for just a word or two about uh, what all this can mean about some of the current, some current issues in theology. I did have a question. I don't know. You may get to this next week, but um, there's a lot of, I, I've talked with the dispensational buddy quite a bit. We go back and forth. He makes a lot of the details that are specifically exist in the prophets that point to the future restoration of Israel. And you know, do, do you have a, an answer for that? You know, what, what, what of the detail, particularly of Ezekiel and the temple and of Amos and the, you know, the, the new land and that sort of thing, as to how that fits into this, how, how that fits into our understanding of covenant? Why the detail of it, if it symbolizes heavenly realities and not physical, uh, you know, millennial kingdom realities? Well, the um, I think even in the prior prior to the prophets, um, there are clear indications that. The, the realities to which God is moving are spiritual sorts of realities. You know, the, the, the land he has in view is a heavenly kingdom. Uh, the people he has in view are a, a transnational people, not just a, a, a Jewish nation. Uh, that the king he has in view is a, a perfect, sinless king. Um, that there are already indications that that's the point to which God is moving. So to, to imagine that then the restoration is to... Uh, lesser reality than what God has been moving toward seems fairly retrograde. Um, and I think that that same, the same point, I think the same supersession in a sense is, I think, repeatedly driven home even by the, the details that are given in some of the prophecies. In the, when Ezekiel measures out the temple, uh, the measurements that he gives in terms of the city of Jerusalem at the time, the temple would be larger than the city of Jerusalem. I mean, the point seems to be being made, through even through the precise details of the measurements, the point is being made that uh, what is coming far exceeds what had been there before. Uh, that it, essentially, the, the fulfillment of the promises can't be contained within uh, the earthly types that had been used in the Old Covenant. Um, so I think even... Even the, 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 the detail that's given is such a almost excessive detail, an abundant, it points to such an abundant reality that I, th I think the point being made is not that it's going to be an earthly reality that can be measured out, but rather the point is that it's going to be a reality that breaks the bounds of anything that this world can contain. I don't know if that answers your Anything else? All right. Well, get y'all have a little bit of time before lunch. Thank y'all for putting up with some extra time of lecture. Hopefully that made up for some lost time that we've had. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.